The sermon today will be from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. We will not have an Old Testament reading today, but only a New Testament reading. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. The title of the sermon is The Office of Deacon. Some time ago I did announce to you, brothers and sisters, that we will be calling for the nomination of a couple of more deacons. Uh, when we will take that nomination, I'm not entirely sure yet, soon. Uh, but here is a sermon devoted to the talk, topic of deaconship so that we might make these nominations according to the Word of God. Uh, we are breaking here now from our series in the book of Genesis just for one week uh, to deal with this subject. We'll resume in the book of Genesis next week, Lord willing. Let us give ourselves now to the reading of God's most holy word, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we, the apostles, should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So far, the reading of God's most holy word, we do pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of it even now. Brothers and sisters, I'll begin by asking this question. Where is Christ at work in the world today? Where is Christ at work in the world today? And I suppose we might answer that question by saying everywhere. He is everywhere at work in the world today. He is in the process now of extending His kingdom to the very ends of the earth, uh, and that would be a true answer. Uh, we might also say that Christ is at work in the lives of individuals, uh, you and me. He is at work in our lives, and that too is a correct answer. He is at work also in our families, isn't he? Uh, Christ should be the center of our marriages and of our families, and he should be at work and is at work within our households. But here is the point that I am driving towards. It is important to recognize that Christ is particularly at work within his church, isn't he? He resides within his church in a pronounced way. Where is Christ in the world? Where is he at work in a most pronounced way? It is within his church. Remember uh, simply that his church is in the scriptures called the body of Christ. Uh, we are his body. Uh, we we are His members. We represent Him in the world. He is here amongst us, working in us and through us always. Uh, remember also that the church is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. So where does the Holy Spirit of God dwell or reside within the world? Well, the Spirit is omnipresent, of course, and He is at work uh, across the world in the lives of individuals and families. That is true, but it is the church, not made up of bricks and mortar and wood and stone, but made up of people. It is the church that is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in the midst of His people gathered together. Uh, Christ is at work 
within His church. And so how important it is, therefore, that the church be found faithful. We are to be faithful in our doctrine. We're to be faithful in our government. We're to be faithful in our discipline. We're to be faithful in our love for God and for one another. I only have to remind you of the opening vision of the book of Revelation, which we studied together some time ago. Uh, What did we see there in that opening vision? What did John describe to us? Well, he described to us what he saw when he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He saw a vision of Christ walking in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And in the course of time, we found out that those lampstands represent the church. And what was Christ doing in the midst of those lampstands? Well, he was demonstrating that he was present with his churches, but also he began to inspect them, didn't he? Because after that vision of the Christ walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, there are seven letters delivered to seven churches, and Christ begins to critique his churches. Only one, I think, was found completely innocent, uh, nothing negative said of them. All the rest, Christ had criticism uh, for them. He spoke and expressed concern for them concerning their doctrine, their way of life. Uh, he, He was concerned for his church, that the church be kept faithful and pure and true until the very end of time. In fact, the New Testament is a church book from beginning to end. The books of the New Testament were written to churches, weren't they? They were written about the church, the development of the church, or even uh, to pastors who were entrusted with the responsibility of leading within the church. And so Christ is very much concerned for His church. He is at work in the midst of her, and we are to be faithful. We're to be found faithful. We might also ask, well, who belongs to the church? And uh, the answer is that the church is made up of those who credibly profess faith in Christ who have been baptized upon profession of faith. These are to gather each Lord's day to worship God, to give attention to His Word, to pray, to break the bread, and to fellowship with one another. Who belongs to the church? It is the disciples of Christ who belong to the church. Those who have been converted, who have been regenerated, who have faith. They are the elect of God who belong uh, to the church. Uh, It is they who have professed their faith through the waters of baptism who are to be admitted to it. This should be just... Common sense, I think. Uh, but quite often today we see that the church uh, is, consists of many who do not even believe or who give no evidence at all uh, for their faith in Christ. And considered in this way, there is no distinction within Christ's church. No distinction at all. We are all simply disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, the children of God. There is no distinction at all. And to quote Paul, when looked at from this vantage point, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But if we consider the church from another vantage point, we will see that there is some distinction within Christ's church. First of all, consider... The fact that we all have gifts that differ from one another. Have you thought much about that, brothers and sisters? We're very different people, aren't we? We have different gifts, and we are to use those gifts as God has given them to us uh, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so there is some distinction there. There is some differentiation there. We are different one from another. Though we are one in Christ, we are different. God has given us different gifts. They are to be used for the common good. And secondly... Some within Christ's church are in fact called to serve as officers so that the church consists of two things, officers and members. Officers and members. Listen to chapter 26 of our confession. 
paragraph 2, uh, this paragraph provides a rather general definition of the local church when it says, All persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, not destroying their own profession by any errors, averting the foundation or unholiness of conversion, are and may be called visible saints, and of such ought all particular congregations to be constituted. So what should local churches be made up of? They should be made up of, they should consist of those who have professed the faith of the gospel. Uh, The church is to be made up of those who believe. But in paragraph 8 of our confession of that same chapter, we read that a particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members. And the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church, so called and gathered, for the particular administration, the peculiar administration of ordinances and execution of power and duty, which he entrusts them with or calls them to, to be continued to the end of the world, are bishops or elders and deacons. And so the local church, when she is completely organized, according to the mind of Christ, consists of officers and members. And what are the two offices of the church, brothers and sisters? What are they? They are elders which may also be called pastors or overseers or bishops. Those terms are used interchangeably and synonymously throughout the New Testament. Elders and also deacons. Uh, These are the two offices uh, that exist within Christ's church. And we might ask the question, well, how do we know that there are to be these two offices within Christ's church? Uh, Well, we know because the Word of God says so. Elders, overseers, shepherds, or bishops are mentioned very often in the New Testament. Uh, For example, in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, we read these words, Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they gathered, he said to them, among other things, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So do you see that in this one passage, Acts 20.17 and also verse 28, uh, the elders are also called overseers, and their job is to care for the church of God, which God has obtained with His own blood. In 1 Peter 3.1, we read, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. This is Peter speaking. I am exhorting the elders among you as a fellow elder, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. This is your job, elders, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. You're to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That is 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 3. In 1 Timothy 3, And Titus 1, we also find qualifications uh, for the office of elder. And here is where it is made clear that the word elder here is not being used to refer to someone who is old, but it is being used to refer to someone who holds an office within Christ's church, for there are qualifications to hold the office. Listen uh, to 1 Timothy 3.1, where we have the qualifications for the office of elder laid before us. The saying is trustworthy, Paul says, 
If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that, they, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And so, brothers and sisters, how important it is for those who hold the office of elder to hold it, having met uh, these qualifications that are set before us in God's Word. Uh, notice the standard is not perfection, thankfully. If the standard were perfection, there would be no pastors. But notice also that there are standards to be met. These qualifications must be met in order for a man to be called to this office, the office of elder. And these qualifications must also be maintained in order for a man to remain in this office. But because this is not a sermon about the office of elder. I'm going to say no more about the subject here. Instead, this sermon is focused upon the other office within Christ's church, the office of deacon. The word deacon means servant. In the Greek, the word diakonos is used many times. And it's often used in a very generic way to refer to a person who is simply a servant. Rulers, even non Christian, non-believing rulers are called servants of God. They are called deacons, if you will. Uh, Christ uh, calls all of His people to be servants. Angels are called servants. Christ Himself was a servant to us. And remember, when Christ calls all of us to be servants, He said, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, diakonos, there the Greek word appears in this generic way, referring to one who is simply a servant, someone who has a servant's heart, one who serves others. And so there is a sense in which all Christians, young and old, male and female, are called to be deacons. Do you hear me? We are all called to be servants. We are all called to serve one another in this generic and general way. All Christians are to love and serve one another. Uh, but this same word for deacon is also used in a more specific way in the Scriptures to refer to an office within the church. There is the office of pastor, elder, overseer, or bishop, as we have seen. And then there is also the office of deacon. Now, obviously, this office has something to do with service, uh, with, as the name implies. It, it has to do with the meeting of practical needs within Christ's church, uh, given the basic meaning of the word. But when taken in this more specific way, it should be plain and clear to see that not all are called or qualified to hold the office of deacon. All are called to be deacons in a generic sense, but not all are called or qualified to hold the office of deacon. And how do we know that there is the office of deacon and not just servants in general? Well, in 1 Timothy 3, immediately following the list of qualifications for the office of elder, uh, we find a list of qualifications for the office of deacon. Uh, there are no qualifications for you to meet in order for you to serve others. You understand that. 
None of you has to say, I have a heart to do this kind thing for my brother in Christ. You don't have to come to the pastor or something like that and say, do I meet the qualifications or standards to do that kind thing? No, just serve, uh, do that kind thing. Uh, But there are qualifications to be met in order to hold an office in Christ's church. Uh, Deacons, we are told in 1 Timothy 3, uh, looking in verse 8, are likewise, they they must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so clearly the word deacon is being used here not to refer to servants in general, but to an office. But to an office. Do you wish to serve? Then serve. I hope that you wish to serve. You must serve if you are a follower of Christ. There are no qualifications to meet, to serve one another, but there are qualifications to meet in order to hold an office in Christ's church. Let us go through some of these qualifications, in fact, all of them uh, briefly. Uh, We're told that deacons are to be dignified. They are to be dignified. The Greek word is used uh, pertaining to that which is appropriate or befitting behavior and implying dignity and respect. A deacon is to be dignified or honorable, worthy of respect, of good character. A deacon must not be double-tongued. In other words, a deacon must not be two-faced or hypocritical. They must not be addicted to much wine. Uh, They cannot be drunkards. They must not be greedy for dishonest gain. I think this is especially important, given that deacons do have the responsibility of handling and distributing funds and goods. They need not be uh, greedy for dishonest gain. They cannot be greedy for dishonest gain. Deacons must also hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What does this mean? Well, Calvin explains this as meaning that a deacon must hold the pure doctrine of religion and that from the heart with a sincere fear of God. And so notice this. No, it is, it is not only required of elders that their doctrine be pure, but of deacons also. I think oftentimes there is this misunderstanding that, that the elders should have their doctrine figured out, but the deacons need not because, well, after all, they're dealing with not teaching, but with meeting physical needs. Not so. In order to hold this office, a deacon needs to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they need to have pure doctrine. They need to understand the Christian faith, and they need to believe it from the heart. They need to be sincere before God with their faith. Deacons are also to be tested first. Notice that. They are to prove themselves blameless before they are appointed to this office. And notice that their wives also must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Isn't this interesting then? Not only must the deacon be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things, but so too his wife, if he is married, is to possess these qualities. 
Brothers and sisters, Christian ministry, if, if you are in the ministry, if you hold an office within the church, it is a family affair. Uh, though the wives of pastors are not pastors, they do play a very significant role in the ministry of the pastor, given that they are in one flesh union with the man. And so it is with deacons. Though the wives of deacons are not deacons in this technical sense, they do play a very significant role in the ministry of the deacon, given that they are in one flesh union with the man. So friends, uh, the significant role that wives of elders and deacons play within the church could hardly be overstated. I hope you understand that. How important it is that they be dignified, not slanderers, not gossipers, but sober-minded and found faithful in all things. Deacons are to be the husband of one wife, we are told. It should be plain to all by now that deacons are to be male. I think that hardly has to be stated, just with a plain reading of this text. They are to be men who are faithful to their wives if they are married. They are to be a one-woman man, it has been said. And it is the opinion of the eldership of Emmaus that a man may still be qualified to serve as a deacon even if he has been divorced in the past or has divorced and remarried. However, we do believe that great care should be taken in situations such as this to know what led to the divorce in the past and to know the character of the man presently. The qualification that is being stated here in 1 Timothy is that as the man is now, he is to be faithful to his wife. He's to be a one-woman man. And lastly, notice in verse 13 we read, um, excuse me, not lastly, notice also that the deacons are to manage their children and their own households well. They are to manage their children and their own households well. Uh, Holding an office within the church and being the head of a household uh, share many things in common. It should not be difficult for you to understand how that would be. Holding an office within the church and being the head of a household share many things in common. And if a man cannot manage his children and his household, that is, if he cannot lead his family effectively and tenderly in a Christ-like manner, then he has no business leading as an office bearer within Christ's church. Uh, These standards are set both for elders, and for deacons. Leading within the church, though it shares similarities with leading within the home, is actually a far more complex task. It's difficult to be a father and even to be a husband. You have responsibilities, right? And you need to demonstrate that you're able to handle those responsibilities well. Caring for your wife, caring for your children, leading them effectively in the ways of God. You need to demonstrate that you could do it there and that rather comparatively simple environment before you're asked to do the same thing within uh, the church. A man must prove himself competent in the realm of the home before he can be given the responsibility of an office bearer in the realm of the church. And now lastly, notice in verse 13 of 1 Timothy 3, that those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. It's a great blessing to hold that office. Uh, They gain for themselves something, a good standing for themselves. They they gain confidence in the faith. Uh, I do believe it is a great blessing to serve as an elder or a deacon within Christ's church. So it should be clear to all that there are two offices within the church. Uh, Notice that there are not more than this and there are not less than this. 
Uh, there is this trend within the church today, I think, to multiply offices, to create all of these positions that are held within Christ's church that are found nowhere in the pages of Holy Scripture. I'll let you think about that. There are not more offices than this, only elder and deacon, and there are not less either. It is not good for a church to be without either of these offices. Uh, notice our confession is clear that a church, when it is fully formed, consists of officers and members. It may be that a church be a true church without a deacon, but that church is not yet fully formed. It may be even that a church be a true church without a pastor for a time. This has happened, and this does happen all around the world, where a church is without a pastor. It is still a church, perhaps, but it is not a fully formed, a fully developed, a fully mature church at that time. There is still a need that is there. The office of deacon, mind you, is not a stepping stone to the office of elder. It is simply a different office. It's a completely different office with different um, obligations and responsibilities associated with it. Uh, gift, different gifts, different callings uh, are, are, are given to those men who are to fill uh, this office. Uh, the importance of the office of deacon should not be minimized, friends. Uh, uh, do you notice that the moral qualifications for elders and deacons are basically the same? Uh, go spend some time this evening and read again 1 Timothy 3. First, the qualifications for elder and then deacon. And notice that the moral qualifications for these two offices are basically the same. Uh, these men, elders and deacons, are to be in Christ and they are to be mature in Christ. They are to understand the mystery of the faith. They, they are to be mature Christian men. In fact, did you notice the word likewise at the beginning of verse 8? In other words, here are the qualifications for the office of elder, and Paul, as he continues on, says, likewise, <laughs> deacons, in a very similar manner, must meet these qualifications. They must be dignified, and so on and so forth. In other words, because the office of elder and deacon are of great importance, the men who hold these offices must be godly and mature men. The qualifications for the two offices differ where it pertains to the uniqueness of the offices. Notice that elders are to be able to teach, 1 Timothy 3.2, whereas no such requirement exists for the deacon, for the office of deacon does not involve teaching. Deacons are to serve, and they are also to facilitate service within Christ's church, just as the name implies, whereas elders or overseers, they are to take up the task of prayer, of preaching and teaching, of shepherding, and of the general oversight of the church. Now, the roles of elder and deacon may be discerned by drawing together all that the New Testament has to say concerning these offices, but, but nowhere is the office of deacon exhibited more clearly than in the passage that we read at the very beginning of the sermon, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Maybe you're still there, but you should be there now if you are not. Um, most commentators will agree that what we have in Acts 6 is a description of the appointment of the first deacons of the church. Notice that they are not called deacons in this passage, but it is clear that the men were appointed to do deacon work. These men were called to diakoneo. Do you hear it? Uh, they were called to diakoneo, that is, serve tables. That was the work that they were to do. They were to do deacon work. 
uh, so that the apostles might devote themselves more thoroughly to the ministry of the word and prayer. And so let us say just a few words about the situation that gave rise to the deaconship. In Acts 6.1 we read, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, these are the very earliest days of the church, the gospel is going forth and more and more are converting to Christianity. Uh, many of them Jews, by the way. They, they hear that the Christ has come and they, they, they proclaim faith in the Christ. Uh, they were increasing in number, but a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in what is called the daily distribution. I think it should be pointed out that never has the church been free from trouble and without controversy. Do you see it here in Acts chapter what? Six. Very small number, right? Acts chapter six. I mean, this is very early in the the church age here. Never has the church been free from trouble and without controversy. Sometimes Christians will speak with fondness concerning the days of the early or apostolic church, saying, we need to get back to how things were in the book of Acts or in the New Testament. And whenever I hear something like that, I think, have you ever read the book of Acts? Have you read the New Testament? It's not hard at all to see that the church has always had to deal with trouble and with controversy. And it should not surprise us because, after all, what are we? A bunch of sinners saved by grace who are still still struggling with sin, still struggling with the flesh. And so do not be discouraged, brothers and sisters, when we face troubles and controversies of our own today. But do pray that we do right in the midst of them to the glory of God and for the good of His church. And in Acts 6, we learn that in the earliest days of the church, favoritism was being shown to those who were Jewish and Christian over those who were not Jewish and Christian. At least that was the accusation that was brought to the apostles. The complaint was made by the Hellenists, these are Gentile Christians, against the Jewish Christians that when it came to the daily distribution, and in other words, when it came to the caring for the widows that were within the church, the Jewish Christians were, were being favored. They were being taken care of, whereas the Greek and Gentile Christians were being neglected. Uh, Whether it is true or not, we don't really know. It seems that it probably was true, given the way that the apostles responded to this complaint. They went to remedy the situation. It was wrong that it was happening. Never has the church, though, been without controversy or difficulty. It should not be overlooked either that the church does have a responsibility to care for the needy in her midst. What is the church to do? Well, the gospel is to be preached. Souls are to be cared for. The worship of God is to be promoted. All of that is true. Much of it is very spiritual. But do you see that from this passage and from the earliest days of the church, there, there, there is this imperative to care for the physical needs of those within the body. There were true widows within the church in those earliest days. And the church had the obligation of caring for those widows and making sure that they were provided for, that they had their basic needs met. In 1 Timothy 5.16, we read, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. In other words, the, the command is this, If you are a Christian and you have a relative who is a widow, you, first of all, have the responsibility to meet that need, to care for that widow. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. 1 Timothy 5.16. In other words, there is... 
priority placed upon the family first. If you have a widow in your family, you are to meet the needs of that widow. But if there is no family to care for that widow, who then is responsible to do it? The church is. The church is to step up and make sure that her members are cared for, not only spiritually, but also physically. In Galatians 6.10 we read, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the obligation of the church. And we see here that the deacons are to be particularly concerned with being sure that the needs, the physical needs of the church are being met. What did the apostles do when this complaint about favoritism arose? They called for the appointment of deacons. They called for the appointment of men who would oversee the benevolence ministry of the church. Here is the first of three aspects of the deacons' ministry. Deacons are to care for physical needs. And I should say at this point that these three observations that I will uh, present to you uh, rather quickly here were made by Mark Dever in his book entitled The Church, and I am indebted to him. Deacons are to care for physical needs. In Acts 6.2 we read, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. This was the response of the apostles. Now, notice a few things about this call for the appointment of deacons. It's very significant. One, notice that the apostles did not appoint them themselves, but called the church together to pick out these men. Do you see it there in the text? The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. They, they, they called the church together and said, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Two, notice that qualifications were provided by the apostles for the church. Uh, Qualifications were provided by the apostles for these men to meet so that the church might select the men according to truth. Um, Granted, it is not the full list of qualifications that we have seen in 1 Timothy 3, but they are here in summary form. The men had to be men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom according to the apostles. Three, notice that apostles called for a certain number of men, presumably to correspond to the need at hand. It it may be that there was some symbolism to the number seven. I'm open to that, just as there is some symbolism to the number twelve, twelve apostles. But it seems more likely that the apostles determined that seven men could get the job done, and so they called for the nomination of seven men. Four, Notice that it would be the apostles who would ultimately appoint the men. It would be the apostles who would ultimately appoint the men. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. In verses 5 through 6, we see all of this play out. And what they, the apostles, said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose these men. And they set these men before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Uh, This sounds almost as if it was like a gang initiation or something like that. They laid their hands on them, but it is not quite as aggressive as that. They laid their hands on them. They prayed over them and commissioned them uh, for the work that the church had selected them to do. They set these men before the apostles, and then the apostles laid hands on them, which means that they prayed over them and commissioned them to fulfill their ministry. And why do I make these observations? Well, 
Is this not our practice? This is the same practice that we have. The elders of the church have called for the nomination of deacons. Two or three will do. Uh, The church is to select these men according to the qualifications established by the apostles of Christ as recorded in the Holy Scriptures. And these men are to be presented back to the elders for eventual commissioning. Uh, This is our same procedure. What will these men do? They will, among other things, care for physical needs. In the case of Acts chapter 6, the seven men were to observe, were to oversee, rather, the church benevolence ministry to widows to ensure that no favoritism be shown to one group or another, but that cases be handled justly and according to wisdom. They were to be sure that no widow went without, but that all the physical needs within the church were being met. The second aspect of the deacon's ministry is to strive for the unity of the church. The second aspect of the deacon's ministry is to strive for the unity of the church. Uh, uh, This observation might be less apparent than the first one, but I hope you can see it still. The church was being threatened in that time with division. It was division not over doctrine, but over the proper care of its members. Uh, Christ cares for His people physically and spiritually, and how important it is for the church to reflect the love that God has for His people in her practice. The church should never neglect the spiritual needs of the saints, nor should physical needs be neglected. But the neglect of either can, in fact, lead to division. And the deacons, in particular, are to ensure that the church's physical needs are met, thus promoting the unity of the body of Christ. And the third aspect of the deacon's ministry is to support the ministry of the elders. The third aspect of the deacon's ministry is to support the ministry of the elders. Hear me very carefully here. The office of apostle and the office of elder are not the same, but they do correspond to one another. Apostles were eyewitnesses of Christ in His resurrection. Apostles were appointed as such by Christ Himself in His uh, resurrection. life and ministry and His resurrection. There are no apostles today. None at all, even though many want to say that there are. There are no apostles today. Today there are only elders, pastors, overseers, bishops, whatever you want to call them. The office of elder and the office of apostle differ in that elders do not speak or write with the same authority that the apostles did. The apostles wrote and spoke the inspired word of God just as the Old Testament prophets did. Pastors and elders do not speak with this kind of authority. Pastors speak the word of God only so long as they are faithful to the word of Christ, his apostles and prophets. But the office of elder and apostle are similar in that both are called to do this. They are called to pray. They are called to the ministry of the word. They are called to the general oversight of the church of God. And in Acts chapter 6, we learn that the apostles viewed the task of caring for the needs of widows, the physical needs of widows, as being extremely important. Do you see it? They did not brush off the matter and say, you know what, spiritual things matter, but this is insignificant. Don't bother us with these troubles. They didn't do that. Instead, they responded because they knew this was an extremely important work. Uh, The apostles were ultimately responsible to be sure that it got done, But notice that they did not see it as their primary task. Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, so on and so forth. And so, no, it was not that the work of serving tables was beneath the apostles. You understand that right. As if they were uh, too good for it, you know, too, too important, too high. Uh, this was not the way that the Lord taught His apostles, was it? Jesus said to them, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. These are the words of Christ to His apostles. This is to be your, your attitude. You are to be a servant. You are to consider yourself the lowliest of all servants, being willing even to do this kind of work, the washing of feet, the washing of dirty feet. This was to be their attitude. But the work of serving tables and the overseeing of the serving of tables, though it was not beneath the apostles, uh, it was the kind of work that would distract them from the thing that they were primarily called to do, namely the ministry of the word and of prayer. They understood that this task was so big and so important, it needed to be handed off to others so that they might focus on the ministry of the word and of prayer. And so we have deacons. Deacons are to support the ministry of the elders in their work. Let me say a few words by way of application as we conclude. I do wonder, as we talk about service, deacons, as we talk about service, have you humbled yourself to allow Christ to serve you? It may seem like an out-of-left-field sort of application question, but, but have you humbled yourself enough to allow Christ to serve you? Obviously, it is God who must humble you, but have you humbled yourself enough to allow Christ to serve you? He is our deacon, is He not? We have no part with Christ. We have no part with God unless we first allow Christ to serve us. Do you remember how Peter, when he was at that table and Christ came to wash his feet, what was his first response? In his pride, did he not say, Not me, Lord, you will not wash my feet. You know, He, he, would, he would not allow himself to be served in that way. And then Christ's response to him was, was very stern. Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then... You and I have nothing to do with each other. There's nothing here. I must serve you. And so I do ask this question. Have you humbled yourself to allow Christ to serve you? And are you humble enough to allow others within Christ's church to serve you? To come alongside and help you? The thing that has not been said but is implied in all that we have considered here is that within the church we need one another. We find ourselves in situations where we need help from others within Christ's church. Sometimes we need help from other members. Sometimes we even need help from the officers of the church. Sometimes our needs are spiritual, but sometimes they are also physical. Brothers and sisters, the, Christ, the, 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 church, uh, the church of Christ, we are to love one another and serve one another. And if we are to do that, then we must also be willing to receive help and not only give it. I've often found that it's more difficult for people to receive help and to be served than it is for them to serve. There is something uh, fulfilling about serving others. There, there's something about it that might even kind of build up our pride, you know. Look at me. I'm caring for others. But are you humble enough to allow others to care for you spiritually and physically? Your brothers and sisters in Christ must do it. Even the officers of the church must do it. We are here to serve one another. I need it myself uh, to be cared for by, by you as my brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you humble enough to allow others within Christ's church 
to serve you. But then I must ask, are you a servant? Are you a deacon in this generic sense? Are you a servant in the home? Are you a servant in the public arena? Are you a servant within Christ's church? And here I have this remark written down, oh, how we would enjoy the good things of this life if we would only take the position of a servant always. I've grown so convinced of this, brothers and sisters. When I, when I hear that, that someone is having trouble in their marriage relationship, I, I, I could almost bet that there's something about this at the core of it, you know, that someone is probably demanding their own way. Someone is demanding to be served, but is unwilling to serve. Someone is demanding to have it their way, and all sorts of conflict and controversy then arises within that sphere. In fact, James says that very thing. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do you remember that passage? And what does he get at? He begins to say that, you know where it comes from? You want something. You're selfish, you want something, and because you cannot have it, oh, you bring all manner of division, all manner of evil into that realm. Brothers and sisters, we would enjoy the good things of this life if we would wake up every day and we would see ourselves as servants. That we would say, this is my day to serve and not my day to be served. Also, I'll ask you this, would you be willing to think and pray about who to nominate to the office of deacon at Emmaus. Very careful consideration needs to be given to this question, brothers and sisters. We'll probably call for the nominations of uh, deacons within the next month or so, I would imagine. We have an officers' meeting this uh, week, and we will discuss this and pick a date. But, but begin to pray now. Begin to think about these things now. Uh, this is such an important thing to nominate someone to an office within Christ's church, be it the office of elder or the office of deacon. And so begin to think and pray about who to nominate uh, to this office. And then lastly, I have this question to ask of you, and this is primarily a question for the men of the church. If you are desirous of the office of deacon, if you are desirous of the office of deacon, would you also be content to serve within the church without holding the office? Would that be fine with you? Would you be content to do that? And the, if the answer is no, if it is honestly no, then I would encourage you not to take this office, even if you were nominated for it, even if it were offered to you. I think it is very important for us, brothers, uh, to, to, to love Christ's church, to love God, to love one another, to be willing to serve, even if it means that we do so in a behind-the-scenes sort of way. And only if that is true of us, that it is only then that we should take a more upfront and obvious uh, role within the church. We must be humble. May it be true of all of us that we would be content to use the gifts that God has given to us discreetly uh, for the good of others and to the glory of God. I'm preaching to you now, brothers, and I'm preaching also uh, to myself, as I always am. Uh, let us consider these things in the, in the weeks to come, friends, uh, but now let us close in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the church. Uh, Lord, here we are as individuals who have faith in Christ and we are sojourning in this world, how good it is to, to sojourn in the context of the church. Lord, we have one another here where we are weak, others are strong. We have the Word of God proclaimed here. Lord, you feed us because you are active and present within your church in a pronounced way. Lord, may we cherish the church. And there are also officers within it. Lord, we thank you for the officers of the church, elders and deacons, who you have called and appointed to that place so that they might do their part. Lord, I pray that your church would be blessed 
built up always. Give us wisdom as a congregation, as we consider about nominating new deacons. May we do so well. We pray that the the nominees would in fact meet these qualifications, that they would be tested uh, truly. Uh, Lord, that the right men would be appointed to the task for the good of your church, for the glory of your name. These things we pray in the name of Jesus and all of God's people say, Amen.